Today we have Tom Lafferty on the show. Have you ever wondered about the difference between receiving a pension versus building wealth through real estate investing? Tom Lafferty has invested in approximately 25 multifamily properties, including 10 syndications and approximately 4,000 units as a general partner. Tom spent 23 years as a firefighter and retired as a captain of a station in the DFW area. In this interview, we discuss everything from how he got started investing in real estate, why he chose multifamily over single family, and what are some of the challenges that come along with breaking into the large-scale multifamily investing space. This is one episode you will not want to miss. Before we jump into the intro, a huge shout out and thank you. We hit 300 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. I am learning so much from each and every one of the guests on the show, and I hope that you are also. Thanks again for helping out. Now, on to the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Tom Lafferty before we start the show. Tom lives in the Dallas area. He was a firefighter for 23 years and retired as a captain of a station in DFW. He is a coach with the Brad Sumrock Multifamily Mentorship Group. He's personally invested in over 25 multifamily deals, both as a limited partner and a general partner. He's worked with many, many, many new investors, and he shares the traits that he's seen propel new investors to success. Now, on to the show. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Tom Lafferty here with us. Tom, appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, Darren. Glad to be here. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So, a little bit on how I know Tom. Uh, so, both Tom and I are in the same multifamily mentorship group, uh, Brad Sumrock Group. And uh, when I joined about three and a half years ago, Tom was actually my coach. So he was assigned to me as my coach. And, you know, when I started underwriting deals, I was sending my underwriting to Tom to review and he'd look at it and be like, Darren, man, I think you missed this. You missed that. <laughs> um, so he kind of helped me through the, through the um, you know, the ropes in terms of getting started. And um, he also is a buyer's broker. So he, he hap happened to help on my first syndication deal, help me land that deal. And there were some, you know, tricky things that we had to navigate through that. And then he helped coach me along the way. So um, huge resource, uh, been in the business for a while, and I'm just so glad that he's on. So Tom, uh, typically first question I ask is how many properties and how many units are you invested in? Yeah, I've done, I think it's about, it was 22 earlier this year. I think it's 24 or 26 now. Most of those are as an LP, passive investor. I've done um, working on my 10th syndication right now. So 22 total, 10 as a general partner, 
and that's probably about 4,000 units. I invested in a lot of a lot of smaller properties as an LP. So, you know, you run across people with these gigantic right. unit counts. That's, that's not me, but man, I've done super well on some sub hundred unit uh, properties. And as, as you know, well, those things can be, can be uh, great deals. So yeah, it's about 4,000 doors and 22 to 24 total properties. That, that's fantastic. You know, that's, it's funny that you bring that up because when I first started in the business, that was something I noticed. Everybody kind of talks about how many units they have. So, um, so I started to, I knew I wanted to syndicate. So I started to invest in passively into some larger unit deals just to, just to get that resume up. But it's, it's, it's so funny because you could invest 50 or hundred K into a small deal and do just as well or better, Mm -hmm. um, than going into a larger deal. And, but it just kind of sounds better on a resume. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, there, there's, there's a definite bias. I see it all the time. I watch people who have struggled to raise money on some, some deals that, you know, as a passive investor, I was like, absolutely. I know the person I know, like with you, you're a good example. I, I worked on several deals with you, so I know how you underwrite. And I almost wouldn't have to look at the numbers to invest in a deal with you. And then there's other people that are you know, the, the opposite, but um, push the envelope it, it, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it can matter if you're a KP, obviously, if you're signing a loan, it can help to have those bigger numbers, you know, but yeah, as a purely passive investor, I don't care if it's 50 units or 300. Yeah, it totally, totally makes sense. So can you share with the listeners, you have a little bit of a uh, untraditional kind of background <laughs> getting into this. Um, so maybe share what you were doing, you know, prior to sure. getting into real estate investing and how you got in. Yeah. And it, you know, it's not really that untraditional in the regard that I didn't have any experience in real estate. That's, I would say the vast Brad's. majority of people in, for sure in Brad's group, a lot of us have come in just, you know, with professional jobs and, uh, you know, lots of people had single family experience, but I was a um, full-time firefighter for a, a suburb of Dallas. And I did that 22, 23 years I retired as the captain of a station in 2019, but I started investing in real estate and really 2012 is when I first learned about multifamily. And I just heard something on the radio, AM talk radio about a, a seminar that was coming up and I was intrigued and I went and listened and I, I ran across apartments kind of by accident. And I thought, you know, there's, there's no way this is for people like me. That's for billionaires. You can't buy apartment complexes. Right. And I ran into a, bunch of people just like me who were doing exactly that. And I spent probably six months and Brad knows this, so I don't mind saying it, but I spent probably six months trying to shoot down his, you know, what he was teaching. I was like, if this is so great, why was, why isn't he doing it? Well, A, he was, he was and is doing it. Uh, but B, he just, he loves teaching it. And I, it took me a while to realize that, but I ran across a lot of people who had had a ton of success. And um, so I kind of just put my head down and, you know, nine, 10 years later, here I am. That's funny. Yeah. You mentioned you're, you were skeptical. Um, oh yeah. You know, and, and I think yeah. that there's, a, there's a lot of people that, you know, when they first get introduced, it, it's like, yeah, this sounds too good to be true. Yep. Um, another piece that I was, you know, when I first got involved that kind of didn't sit right with me initially was, all right, we're going on these bus tours and this one group is selling the deal and they're in the Sumrock group and they're selling the deal and they're going to make a fortune. 
they're going to double their investor money, right? And then there's another group that's buying it. And how's it going to work for them? Yeah, I'm thinking <laughs> yeah. to myself like, yeah, all right, this the buying the next buying group is the sucker, right? Like yep. you know, oh yeah. And and it took me a while for people to kind of educate me on. Well, look, the first group kind of ran out of money. Like they they had a business plan to take it from point A to point B. Yep. And then they didn't have any more capital to take it to the next level. And then this new group comes in with fresh capital that they can do additional upgrades that they couldn't do sure. the yeah. original group. And then they could take it to a completely different level. So that was, that took me a while to, to, to really get past that. And understand. I, I deal with that on a, well, not daily, but I, you know, and I'm still doing the coaching thing and the buyer brokerage thing. And, and I get that constantly. I mean, and I get it. I was, I was the same way. It took me forever. You know, we're, we're doing one right now and, and lots of questions I got was, well, Hey, if, if there's so much room to root, to increase rents or all, you know, this, this seller is such a well-known big time operation. It makes no sense that they're selling it. Why would they do that? <laughs> and right. you know, it's, it's nonstop. Um, you know, the one we just sold that of course you were in and, and a, a guarantor with us, um, we, gosh, did we sell it for a lot more than we paid, right? Yes, and, absolutely. And of, I was thankful to be a part of that one for sure. <laughs> a lot of buyer groups were, um, I, since I was the seller, I had a lot of people asking me, you know, hey, are these guys, is this plan they've got really for real? And and in that case, I was, you know, I've, I've sold deals to people I've known before and I'm always super, super upfront, you know, here's what I'm concerned about. You know, I would set aside money for this or whatever. You know, I just, I'm more... Uh, interested in their them doing well, and I don't want to be nervous when I see them years from now. <laughs> um, but this one, I was like, absolutely yes. There's things we could have done, and then COVID hit, and we everybody kind of hunkered down, you know, and we just didn't do it. But oh, there was so much room in that deal, and I think that, I think these guys are going to crush it, even though they paid twice what we did, <laughs> right? So it's it's crazy. It happens all the time. So let's, if you don't mind, let's talk about that deal a little bit. Um, you, you know, you mentioned I was part of that deal. I was. I was a key principal on that deal and signed on the loan. Yep. Um, I was not a general partner, but, um, you know, it gave me the key principal experience. And, um, you know, with that, you, you know, you, you still sign on the loan and you want the deal to do well. And plus you invested money and, um, talk a little bit about how you got that deal. What, uh, what, what were some of the concerns going in? Because I know that you had, See, the listeners don't all know you, but I know you. You are conservative <laughs> and you're humble and you're, you know, um, so scared. Right. Right. Yeah. All those all those things. And and so it, it was you were going forward with it, but you were also a little nervous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I I mean, and Brad will tell you this, too. There, he said he's never done a deal that he wasn't afraid he was paying too much. And, and I'll attest to that. You always think that, you know, when you you push your business plan to where you think you can you know, everyone says they're using conservative underwriting. You're never going to see an offering that says, you know, we were ultra aggressive on this, <laughs> right, right? Right. Ever, even if they are. But, you know, you, we have guidelines that, that we kind of do have to stick to, like rent growth and exit cap rates and all these things. But on that one, it was technically off market. It was not listed, but every broker in town was, was showing this deal to every buyer. So, and it kind of got to be a joke, you know, um, and nobody could get to the price. And so I'm thinking, what business do I have, you know, buying this thing if, if 
I'm willing to pay more than everyone else. And so I, you know, I made my offer and they did not accept it. It went to somebody else. And that guy was taking way too long to negotiate the contract. I think they were three weeks in. And the broker came back to me and said, look, if you can step in at his price, and I think it was 10, eight or something like that, then you can have it. And I, I looked at my numbers and we, you know, stressed them again. and went over everything with the property management company. And I said, I can't do it. 10, six is the most I can do, which looking back is so stupid to have almost lost that deal. For two and they said, yeah. And they said, no, we can't do it. Oh, okay. So the next day they called and they said, okay, we'll do it. And so, but I, I, so it was supposed to be a loan assumption. Uh, I'm sorry, new debt with a million dollar prepayment penalty to the, to the seller. And for whatever reason, it just worked better underwriting it as an assumption. And I said, can I pay instead of 11, six, can I pay 10, six and assume your existing loan? And they thought about it for a day and they said, yeah, that's fine. So that's what we did. And then we, we took out a supplemental loan along with the new debt. And um, yeah, we were, <laughs> we were nervous about, you know, pro forma rents. We knew that the, the seller, you know, they, they were very open and said, look, we're, we're not great managers. Our occupancy has just plummeted. Our income is dropping. Um, so we were, we were thinking, you know, wow, we're going to have a lot of turnover. Uh, you know, our income in the first year is going to be very rough. And so I was nervous about all those things. And, you know, you go around and you shop all the comps and you, you get a good idea of where you think market rents can go. But there were a lot of properties nearby that were in worse shape, uh, long, long-term ownership. And they just weren't pushing rent. So that was, that was a big concern. You know, I didn't want to push too much and be the highest in the market, yet we were one of the nicer properties. So it was, it was tricky. And, you know, it, it obviously turned out great. And, um, yeah, it, it was a pretty simple deal once we got through that first. Yeah, it was a funny story about the, I think, six months in, the portfolio manager from Arbor, which you may have gotten some notices too because you were, you were on the loan. Uh, they were uh, reaching out to us and they were like, Hey guys, your occupancy is 77%. What are you doing? Right. And you know, the income was this before. And I said, look, why don't you go talk to, it's your loan. We assume this from you go talk to those guys. You know, we're just, we're cleaning up their mess. And he said, okay, that's fine. And, and they, but they did ask. Yeah. So that was, that was one of our challenges. And um, gosh, we had some, I think, the first we closed in June and like a month later, one building lost all power. It was a big $10,000 repair and somebody called the city and, you know, just some things like that were a little nerve wracking, but for the most part for three years, it was, it was a, just a great running property. Yeah. So, I mean, a few things, one, um, when I got involved, I, you know, I had been working with you for a while and I knew you were conservative, right? So I knew that if you were going after this deal that, you know, it, it, you went after it from a conservative approach. Um, but after you closed, like you said, all of a sudden I'm, I'm seeing the monthly reports and things are not going the right direction yeah. Yeah, yeah. initially. Right. Yep. And so it's like, Holy cow, what's going on? And then you just, you know, as an LP, you kind of just have to let the GPs roll for a while. And, and the, you know, the business plan doesn't always go in a straight line. There could be hiccups along the way. Yep, sure. um, but like you said, uh, it turned out to be a great deal. And, you know, that may, uh, you know, what is a great deal um, from the listener's perspective? You know, as an LP, we 
double, more than doubled our money in, in like what, three, three and a half years, years? three, you know, three years. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's amazing. I, so I had heard about people doubling their money in, you know, two or three years or four years. And, but that was the first deal that actually went full cycle for me. So I was very thankful. Um, and on that one, I didn't realize that you, you initially had put in an offer, um, with new debt. I thought it was always an assumption. My offer always was as an assumption. Yeah. But they, they were shopping it. They were not shopping it that way. It was, it was new debt is what they wanted. So, you know, talk about the difference between doing a deal with new debt versus an, an, you know, as an assumption, loan assumption. Yeah. It, you know, it depends on market conditions. Um, at the time, I think interest rates for new debt was probably upper threes, maybe 4%, uh, maybe, maybe lower than that, three and a half. It was dramatically better than what the existing loan was. And that's why, you know, they thought nobody's going to want to assume this, this dog of a loan. Um, the interest only was already over. So we were going to be amortizing immediately. And it's just not a good situation for new buyers. But, you know, like I said, I underwrote it both ways and it worked better the other way. So um, with new debt, like you look at today, we, when we sold that deal, our interest rate was probably, gosh, almost 5%. And right now you can get below three. <laughs> so That's there's no way. Difference. Yeah, no way. I mean, even a point, even a half a point, as you know, can make your numbers dramatically different, better or worse. And so, yeah, it, you know, new debt, you can typically get interest only, which helps your cash flow. You can get all these things, um, you can choose your lender. Um, it, you know, now I've, I've also continued to, we've assumed two loans this year that are existing and the rate was a little bit higher than, than what new debt was, but um, you know, the, it, it just, it worked out. So that's what we're doing. And um, typically it's much more desirable to get new debt, but, but not always. So I would think, and I don't know if this is the case, but I would think that it, narrows the the buyer pool so if you are an assumption com- yeah comfortable with doing an assumption that you know you may you may end up not be competing as, with as many buyers is that the case or not the case uh, maybe i mean you know you you have to have agency if, if if you're assuming an agency loan you have to already have agency experience and that's the same with new debt so i i don't know that it necessarily does i think it's it's just you know, if there's somebody that just has to have interest only and a deal does not, maybe that would reduce, you know, a few buyers. But I don't I don't think it it uh, does too much as far as the buyer pool. OK, doesn't seem like it. Now, on that deal, um, what was what was the largest deal you had done prior to that? So that one. Uh, I did 32, then 78. And then that was my and then 106. And this one was 154. So I had done three. Okay. Yeah. Two bridge, two bank loans, like full recourse bank loans, which nobody does anymore. Uh, and then I helped the Staples get their first deal. Um, and that was a Freddie, I don't remember. But yeah, then then Oasis was my fourth, third or fourth. Because I, rem- I remember, at least, I don't know if you said it or somebody else was saying, but it was a big deal for you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was, it was double what I had done before for sure. Right. right. So it was a yep. big deal. And then, um, in this past year, I think I recall you having 
two deals at the same time. It, what, you weren't <laughs> trying to do that, but all of a sudden it just, you know, happened that way in, in yep. two different states. <clears throat> right. Well, it's happened. We've had two deals at a time twice this year. Really? It's been absolutely crazy. Yeah. Not, I typically do a deal like every two years and there's been four this year and it, it was just, you know, no, I'm partnering with a couple other guys. So obviously we have more bandwidth, but um, it's, it's been crazy. And it, it was all just relationships. I think three of the four were off market. Somebody called us about and, and we liked them and they worked. So we said, well, you know, this is a terrible idea, but let's try it. And it was, it was a mess. Well, it was, it was hectic, I will say, um, but we got them done and yeah, so far so good. So talk about partners. So on the, the Oasis deal that we were in together, you were, you basically said like, look, man, my life's crazy. I just don't know if I'm going to have enough time to manage the day to day on this. I want to partner with somebody else that's going to be kind of, you know, running the day to day and I'll yep. oversee it. Right. Um, so how did you pick your partner on that deal? So that, yeah, I, and it, it wasn't so much the time. It was just, I don't, I don't love that part of it. I've done it. Um, and I don't, you know, a lot of people will, will do asset management just for the fees. I mean, they can be very lucrative, you know, especially as you get up into the bigger deals. And so it's hard to, to walk away from that. But I thought, you know what, I, I'm, I just think my time is better spent, you know, building relationships with brokers and investors and looking for new deals. And that's what I enjoy. And so, yeah, I, I had met multiple people in the group that had expressed an interest in doing that. And I, you know, I found somebody who had left um, a corporate job, had a, you know, C-level job, advanced degrees, all kinds of things. And we, we were, you know, kind of hit it off personally. And, and I asked him and he said, sure. <laughs> and he lived near the property. Fantastic. Um, so I gave him a couple points of the GP and he, you know, he did all the, the investor communications and analyzed the, he's a numbers guy, you know, CFO by trade. And, uh, uh you know, he would go through the financials and communicate with the management company. And, you know, he was always updating me and we talked and, um, but it just, to me, it was worth it to give up, you know, a share of the deal. And when it was all said and done, you know, it was a, it was a pretty big chunk of money that he got for doing that. And I was happy to do it, happy to do it. So, and I continue to do that now. I mean, I've got a partner that's just an outstanding asset manager and, and I just know it's, you know, he's better at it than I am. And, I don't want to do it. <laughs> so I can, I continue to, to operate that way. Those are good points. So, I mean, you know, some people will, I've seen it happen in a number of different ways. Some people will form a company and they'll form a company with like two or three different people. And maybe one person is kind of the asset manager. Mm-hmm. One person is the investor relations and kind of deals relationships with the brokers and, and they build a company that way. And then as they get more deals, maybe they bring on asset managers and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then other people do it kind of what you're talking about is like, hey, I go out and partner with people that other people like to do the pieces that I don't like to do. Yeah, sure. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And we're, we're having those discussions now. I mean, we're in, you know, probably, I mean, Josh, he's managing probably eight deals now and um, spends a lot of time doing it and enjoys it and he's good at it. But you know, a few more and we're, we're talking about having to potentially hire somebody. Right. Uh, but we're, you know, just like you said, there's also another piece is you can find a partner who we can, you know, train and 
um, let them manage that. But of course, as they get experience, they tend to want to go off and do their own thing. So it's, right. it's, uh, you know, I don't necessarily want employees. We're not looking to grow a big company, but at some point, you know, you, you've just got to realize what, what your time is worth. Absolutely. No, I mean, I think that's smart. And talk about, so you're a coach. So you see people coming into the group that from all different industries, sure. um, all different levels, um, talk a little bit about, you know, what are the, the characteristics of people that you've seen become successful versus Ooh. those that kind of come in and maybe they falter away? Sure. That's a really good question. Um, I, th- I feel like I've had this conversation with you years ago because you looked at a lot of deals before you got the one that, that we worked on. And I, I would, and Dante and I, my partner in the brokerage, we talk about this a lot too. We do see some really common, um, I don't know if they're traits or actions or what, but the guy that comes in and just underwrites every deal that comes out, they go tour them all, they start talking to every broker in town. Um, you know, they put a ton of work, it takes a ton of work to win a deal. So they, you know, really go hard at it. Um, and then they don't win it and it just crushes them. They're so emotionally tied to these deals those people tend to kind of just burn out, you know, and it's, you know, you kind of have to have a, a, a box that you're looking for. You can't be underwriting every deal of every age construction, every size, every city. Um, you know, you need to focus a little bit and you had the exact um, mix of what we see that is successful, which is you looked at some deals and when you didn't get them, I mean, maybe you were upset, but it wasn't like it just crushed you that, that I saw, you know, you were like, oh, done work. Let's go. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I could say that I, I it, it hurt, you know, sure, it's, yeah. it, it, stinks, it, I know. It, it sucks, man. It sucks when you put in all that work and you don't Especially get it. When you're but close. I, yeah. Yeah. You come in second or third and, and, uh, but, but I tell my kids like, look, I got a day or two and then I got to pick myself up and go after yeah. the next one. Yeah. And, and, you know, you didn't look at every deal in town. Um, you were willing to look as a first time for your first one, you were willing to look at sub hundred units. I see a lot of people that come in and they've seen, you know, somebody on the stage that did a 250 unit deal on their, their first try, which you can do. I mean, it's not, it's not unheard of, you know, they, they were probably a smaller partner with a more experienced person to pull that off. Uh, but you know, people see that or they partner with three or four people and they say, you know, Hey, a, a 80 unit deal is not going to make me any money. And so they won't even look at them. And I, I just, you know, they don't understand what a difficult road that is to be a first time buyer looking at a 1980s property in Arlington, Texas. Um, the, you know, the people you're competing with are, you, you could walk in there as, the, as a new buyer, be the highest offer by a million dollars and you may not get it because these brokers don't know you. They're not, they're not certain that you're gonna bring the deal back to, to them when you're done with it. Um, just all these things, you know, they, they, and it depends on the sellers too. Some sellers, their hot button is absolute certainty of closing. And so if they have any doubts that you're going to be able to do it, they won't pick you. Um, and again, I'm not saying people can't do that on their first deal. I've seen it, but you were willing to look at smaller ones and you got a smoking deal. I suspect is probably going to do incredibly well when you sell it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, and, it's and, and you've got, and you've got your, um, your first deal is always the hardest. You, you've done it, you know, um, 
and people have to, my first deal was 32 units. I, I probably made enough money to cover the gas I spent driving back and <laughs> forth to that place. Uh, but, but you know, it, 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 it was building a track record that investors saw. It was building a track record with brokers. And it's just, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of, of, you know, doing what you have to do to get that first one done. But yeah, the burnout is one thing. Um, and then one other common thing that does not work is somebody will call me and I look at a deal and maybe, maybe not even really go after it that hard. And I don't hear from them again for six months. And then they kind of look at another one. There has to be something between that 100% and burnout versus dipping your toe in. You know, you've right. got to stay, stay active, stay in communication with the brokers. And it's, it's, it's a mix of those two things. Oh, that makes sense. It makes sense. It's good to hear, um, from, you know, because you and Dante see, see a lot, see a lot of different people, yep. see a lot of different deals, see a lot of different approaches. Um, you know, I had, I had one guy um, talk to me on Instagram and, you know, called me and, and he said, you know, I joined one of these groups if, if they would just guarantee me a deal. <laughs> Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I was like, don't join, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. look it, at the end of the day, whether you, you're part of the Sumrock group or a different multifamily mentorship group, or you just find a mentor or you just go after deals on your own, however you do it, you know, if you're expecting somebody to knock on the door and just hand it to you, like, don't, don't waste your time. Yeah. Like, what, if, if that existed, what would that mentorship cost? I mean, right. half a million dollars, you know, I, it would have to be expensive, right? Um, no, yeah, you got to do the work. And you know, another, another thing I'm always harping on, and I'm still learning it, uh, as I'm, you know, I'm really close to a lot of these brokers now and friends with them and we go skiing and our families are together and, um, you, you cannot, you have to stay in communication with them, but you can't be a pain, right? I've, I know of people who are just bugging them to death and trying to take them to lunch. And these guys are so busy and they've got so many buyers that are capable Again, it's a balance between staying engaged versus driving them crazy, right? And driving them crazy doesn't have to just be number of contacts. It's how you interact with these people. If you, you know, you get frustrated with them or you, I've had people just rip these brokers apart because they, they thought their OMs were too aggressive or, you know, you, the, the comps you used are terrible. This is ridiculous. And, you know, these guys don't like to be treated like that, just like anyone else. So it's, yeah, it's, it's time staying in the business. It's engaging with these guys, treating them well and making them want to call you back. And it's funny. I've seen, I've seen people lose deals over that where the broker just told me that guy, I don't want to work with him. And then I've had the opposite where somebody won a deal. And for whatever reason that, you know, they toured the property with this, this buyer. And they said, I really like that guy. I just connected with him. And, and whatever they're doing to make that happen, it's, it's a real thing. And it makes a huge difference. It it's, is, it it's, is, it is a relationship and a people business for sure. Absolutely. In so many different avenues. I mean, mm -hmm. with brokers, with partners, with, yep. you know, with limited partners, attracting capital, you know, there's so many different facets to it. Yeah. So earlier you talked about, um, you just mentioned it off the cuff. Um, you said giving it, giving it back. Like brokers may not be, you know, um, sold that they're going to give it back, you mm -hmm. know, uh, explain to the listeners what that means. Yeah. So these guys are as concerned with getting a fee for selling a deal. You know, they want to make sure it closes so they get paid, but they want it to, uh, be sold through them again. 
They do not want it to go to another broker. And so they really look at it as a, you know, keeping control of a deal and, and selling it 10 times if they can, right? So and if you think about it that way, it makes a ton of sense. It's, you know, it's almost like an insurance agent getting a, a fee for annual premiums. It's, it's uh, and it happens, you know, deals go um, to other brokers and it makes everyone mad. And, you know, you can potentially burn a bridge like that because then when that deal, that broker has another deal for sale, you know, do you really think he's going to want to sell it to you if, if he sold one to you and you didn't come back? So it's, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a big uh, golden rule, if you will. Yeah. I think that when people come into the industry until they're told that they don't really think about it, you yeah, know, they, oh, sure. they, yeah. they're just thinking about buying the deal, but that's something that I was coached on and, you know, talking to the broker and letting them know, you know, mm -hmm. I, you know, my expectation is this, you know, um, plan on, you know, working it back through the, through you guys on the, on the, on the sale. Yep. The other thing is, is that, I, and I don't know if you've seen this, um, but if there's two buyers that are around the same price point and one is a syndicator that has a reputation of, you know, turning deals in three or four years. And another one is a buy and hold investor yep. that's going to hold the deal for, you know, 10, 20 years. You know, does the broker have more inclination to, you know, suggest the syndicator get it? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and there's other factors, you know, if it's, if there's a long-term holder, that's a great person to work with versus a syndicator that's a, a jerk or, you know, that they know is going to have trouble or maybe, you know, might not be able to raise the money or whatever. Um, but no, I've, I've been given direct feedback on that. And I lost a deal recently. Uh, it was neck and neck and I won't bring up brokers or buyers because you guys would know all of them, but um, great guy I was competing against. I mean, we're friends and uh, he's, he's a well-known long-term holder, well-known. And the broker was like, I mean, that stinks that I'm going with him, but I had just got another off-market deal from the same broker that was under contract. And, you know, th there were various factors, but, but they will definitely tell you that, you know, yeah, I'd much rather you sell this thing in three years versus 10. Right. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's more money for them and yeah. another transaction. So yeah. um, let's see, you talked about, what you're passionate about is, is actually building relationships. You don't like the asset management um, as much. Right. Um, so when did you learn that after your first deal? <laughs> I, I definitely learned it on the first deal because I self-managed it. And it, it was, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't do another deal for two was years. Was that the, the, the Whisperwood? Whisperwood. Yeah. yeah I, totally. I actually looked at that property at one point. It's for sale right well. now for the is third it, time. Is it, it is, is it yeah. Really? For the third time since I owned it, it's for sale <laughs> Holy again. Holy cow. And yeah, I, I had a great management situation. I borrowed a manager from the property next door and she was, you know, essentially we had a full-time 40-hour a week manager on a 32-unit deal, which is great. Um, but I was, I spent so much time on that and Brad finally had to tell me, he goes, look, it's time to look for your next one. Like you're, you know, what are you doing? And, and I already told you, I didn't, I had a 10% sponsor compensation piece. Um, and, and I thought the numbers were just so tight that I couldn't do more than that. I did not take an asset management fee. 
and, and when it sold, it we the investors got 105 percent in two years. So it, oh, you know, we did in really two well years. in two years. But I made probably I don't know thirty thousand dollars, which is a that's a chunk of money. But when you look at two years of work and you know, it, it was like I said, I might have covered my gas money for driving mm-hmm. back and forth, which I did too much. Um, but yeah, it you know it, at that point I was like, okay, no more self management. The second one I had third party, but it was a massive turnaround, massive. Like the invest, the, the seller falsified uh, records. He lied Holy about cow. replacing the roofs. Um, it, it just. It, we were undercapitalized. We put probably eight or nine thousand a door into this thing, which is a lot in our our circle, right? Um, and we budgeted for about five, so we were way under. And there was just a lot of stress and a lot of back and forth. And you know, the income would would go up on paper, and then one month it would take a big drop. And well, you know, our delinquency was terrible, and we just had such bad tenants going in that this guy had put in. They had 18 down units out of oh, 78, 18? out of 78. Holy cow. Yep. And even more were not paying, even though they had reported that they were. And, you know, it was just, and again, the investors got 85% in two years when we sold it. So we did great, but it was just so much work. And on the third one, I was like, you know what? <laughs> I just, I'm ready for uh, maybe not to focus on that. Uh, let someone else do it. But um, you know, I would do it again. I, I debated doing it on one we bought recently and just finally realized, you know, and, and all these big deals, I mean, it can be a six figure per year number, you know, it's, but it's, and it's, it's a, it's a well-paid job, but if you do it right, you know, you spend a lot of time on it and, uh, just, you know, I, I thought, look, if, if I don't do that and it allows me to do one more deal per year, it'll make right. up for that. So sure. that's, that's kind of the thinking right now. That makes sense. So talk about mindset because look, when you got involved, first of all, you were skeptical. Then you started out small with a 32 self-managed deal. Then you've grown. Now this year you did four deals, you know, like, so, but it doesn't happen overnight. You know, it, it, you kind of have learning lessons along the way and you build your own, I don't know, you, you, you kind of your own experience level and you gain confidence in yourself and in the process. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've been slow in the, the confidence building part of how <laughs> I'm finally starting to give myself a little bit of credit for, you know, for underwriting these deals. Um, well, I guess, or, you know, being as conservative as you can um, putting investors first. That's always, for some reason I've had in my head that if I put out that we're going to give 80% in five years, I sort of, I still kind of have this feeling if, if we return 70% in five years, I almost look at that as like, it's almost the same in my head as losing the property. Like it's a total failure, which is stupid. You know, when you put money in the stock market, right. You know, you know, it can go down. Um, but, but I, I think that's gone a long way towards building the track record that I have. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it, you, I mean, I spent every waking moment in the, you know, researching and studying and all that stuff for the first many years. And it was probably too much, you know. Um, I was taking in information from way too many sources. And I, I, funny, I've had, had somebody this week, it's news, say, what books do I need to read? What podcasts? Um, you know, what seminars do I go to? 
and, and I was kind of hesitant. I gave him a couple, you know, sure. I was just like, be careful about Doing taking too, it too much. Oh too my much. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, you know, Brad's been promoting that it's a great time to buy the whole time I've been in the group. And then there's other people that are, you know, have even longer in the business than him that were saying, absolutely not. Don't buy the runs over, you know, the market's going to crash. And they didn't buy for many, many years. And we did. And we like Oasis Springs, we doubled our, did, you know, two and a half times our money um, during that period. So not saying it can't happen, but um, you just got to, you know, learn what you can and decide who you want to listen to. And in my case, it was way too many people. <laughs> so I, I had think, to, I had I to think also, that. you know, this business lends itself to being able to, you can be you, you know, you can be um, your own character. I know that when your communication, when it comes out, it's almost apologetic. It's like, <laughs> you know, it, it's like you know, all these other deals are coming, coming in my email box. And it's like, this is why you should get, you should invest in this deal because this, 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 this. And then you, yours comes in and it's like, Hey, I don't want to really bother you, but I got this deal and like, you know, I'm putting it together and I'm just talking to a few people and like, you know, maybe something you might want to look at, you know, and the next thing you know, it's like two days later, it's like, Oh, it's full. <laughs> <laughs> it's not how I intended to come out, but yeah, I, I've often been accused of people saying, you know, are you trying to talk me out of this? But <laughs> I, I, especially if it's, you know, someone I'm close with, I want them to fully understand you know, what, what makes these things go up or down or like, you know, what happens if, if rent growth is, is lower than we say, or higher than we say, or, you know, I just, I want people to, um, to understand the risks and the benefits and all that good stuff. But yeah, I, I could see how they probably come across that way. <laughs> well, <clears throat> and I, I have to imagine now that you've, you're partnering with some people that, you know, have, you know, are taking the asset management piece and, you know, not only do you have a great track record, but your partners have a great track record as well. Yep. Um, you know, at some point it, you know, it kind of, it kind of flips to look, you're presenting an opportunity, you know, that's what it is. It's an opportunity yep. Yep. and it's an opportunity with people that have done it, you know, and have had success. And um, you talked about the stock market, you know, a lot of people invest in the stock market and it's kind of like, throwing dice, they don't really know the, the investments they're getting into and, right. you know, you know, where the valuations are and how, and, and if you say you, you buy Amazon stock, well, if you buy 10,000 or $50,000 worth of Amazon stock, it's 10,000 or $50,000 worth of Amazon stock. But in these multifamily deals, there's a ton of leverage. Mm -hmm. So the equity piece is only, you know, 20 to 30%, 35%, depending on how much the rehab is right. of the deal. So you don't have to, to double your money, you don't have to double the price. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. A lot of people which don't is, get that. Yeah. Which is so different than the stock market. You know, right. if you buy a stock at a hundred to double your money, it's got to go to 200, but yep. it's not the case in these multifamily deals because you've got the leverage of the loan and yep. all the profit goes to the equity holders. Yeah, you're you're getting a return on the bank's money minus their interest, right? So it's, yeah, that's one of the greatest things about it. Yeah, that and um, the depreciation is not bad. Also, the tax True. tax efficiency yeah. is is pretty amazing. And I, you know, I did have a mindset. I don't know. It was sometime this year. I had a big 
revelation, you know, in, in, in Brad's group, it's always been kind of a no, no to take acquisition fees where, you know, it, it is definitely the norm in the real world. And a lot of us were new and, and I get it. Investors should, should get a proportionate, you know, share of the return because they're taking a big risk on you. But somebody was questioning me about it. And I was saying, I don't have, you know, didn't have a lot of confidence in my track record. And it, and it dawned on me one day, I was like, you know, I've got at the time I had $500,000 of my own money in non-refundable uh, deposits with a title company. So if the deals fell through, gone, I lose it all. And it dawned on me, I was like, you know what, I truly am. And this particular person had been in every deal I did. And I had, I looked at the dollars I had made for them. And it was a lot, it was a lot of money they had made. And I thought, you know, like you said, the confidence kind of kicked in a little bit. And I was like, yeah, we are taking a fee on this one. And I'm 100% fine with it because I, and also to win this one deal, we had looked at probably 40, you know, right. flown, flown across the country, spent nights away from home and all this stuff. And people don't see that. They don't think about it, but it did dawn on me exactly what you said is we're, we're working our butts off to, and yes, we're doing very well or else we wouldn't be doing it. Right. But sure. these are really great opportunities for people. And, um, that, you know, in the beginning, it's like when you're talking to investors, it's like you, you know, you want to, you definitely want everyone you can to invest and you're, you're maybe telling them what they want to hear and all this stuff. And now it's like, if somebody asks me a question that, you know, I answer it and they're skeptical or they don't, whatever it is, if they're giving me a hard time, I might just say, all right, fine, you know, don't, don't invest. Maybe this isn't the right opportunity at the yeah, right time. Yeah. And I'm fine with that. And maybe I don't send them the next deals either. So, um, right. Yeah, you're right. As you go, it kind of, it does flip. You, you know. That's, you know, you brought up another point that I, I think that a lot of passive investors don't realize is that, you know, the syndicator fronts a lot of money in oh, yeah. the beginning. And so, you know, sometimes there could be this uh, thought process from passives like, oh, they just want they just want my money so I, they can get the deal closed and make money off of me, you mm -hmm. know? But the syndicator is not going to front non-refundable, you know, deposit money and all the fees for the attorneys and the third-party reports and the inspection and the appraisal and all that if they don't have confidence that the deal is strong enough to, right. <laughs> to be able to raise the money. Yeah. So, you know, that's something that I think a lot of people don't realize that the syndicator fronts all that money and then they raise capital and then they, you know, assuming that the deal closes 60 days later, they get refunded that, that capital, but yeah. the syndicator fronts all that. So it, right. that's the risk on the syndicators. Well, and the debt, of course, I mean, you know, there's a, we, we've signed, I don't know how many tens of millions of dollars worth of debt this year alone which it is not recourse, but, you know, there's ways recourse can be triggered. There's um, and really the biggest risk for a syndicator if they want to stay active is if a deal goes badly, they're not going to do any more deals, right? So, you know, investors won't want to invest with them. Lenders in particular won't lend to them. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a huge risk to your reputation, your finances, um, everything. So, yeah, it's, no, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, somebody taking acquisition fees, if it's, you know, their first couple of deals or, or even if they've bought several and they, they don't have a, a track record to show how they've performed. Um, but once you do, you know, I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's entirely 
reasonable and, and people are fine with it for the most part. And it's, you know, in, in our little world that you and I are part of, I think our fees are dramatically lower typically than what you would see in, you know, what I call the real world or the outside world. Yeah. Um, I, I was talking to yeah. somebody, I'm not going to mention names, but I, when he said what the, his acquisition fees were, I was like, holy cow. Like, <laughs> yeah. But I'm like, he's still, you know, the track record when he was talking about returns for the limited partners, they were still really substantial. Yeah. So I was like, well, look, I mean, that's, that at the end of the day is the most important is, is, you know, the investor is putting money in, are they getting, you know, uh, an adequate return back yeah. and, you know, an expected return back. So. Yeah. And if somebody's do, you know, I've also seen people that I feel like we're doing deals just for the big fees. Like they got really aggressive. And if those deals don't perform, I'm certainly not going to invest with them again, you know, for sure. for sure. And it's, so yeah, it's, it's, it all comes down to track record. You might, you might be able to do that for, a handful of deals, but if you keep doing it, you know, people aren't dumb. They, yeah, they, they know what's going on. So another thing you brought up was the lenders. And and I think of this as a, um, as a kind of another safety net. Like, so, you know, in if you're part of a mentorship group like we're in, um, you know, I'm going to underwrite the loan, the, the deal, and then I'm going to present it to a coach like you, and you're going to look at it and put your eyes on it and you say, you know, it looks good or, Hey, we should tweak it here. Um, and then, you know, I've got a business partner and they've got to review it. And, um, there's a, there's a third party property management company that has to put their numbers into it and all, all of that. But then you go for the loan. Yeah. And if you're going to the agencies, you know, Fannie and Freddie, I don't know, multifamily world, large scale multifamily world, maybe they do. I don't I'm, I'm ballparking it, maybe 50% of the origination. Sure. They have these massive databases of all multifamily deals across the entire country going back years and years and years through mm-hmm. up cycles and down cycles. And they are not going to approve that loan if they don't think the property can, you know, can have the, the results that are in the, in the business plan. Yeah. And that is huge. And the loan is based off the operations today, not after we do the rehab and all that. Like they're they're like, all right, what are the what's the income today? What are the expenses today? Yep. And I'm gonna loan on that. And right. so when once that lender, that Fannie and Freddie approves that, you know, the loan amount at the at the same amount, or sometimes they'll even say, Hey, you're you know, you were going to do a 75, but I'll, I'll do a 78% LTV loan. Mm-hmm. Well, that's even more confidence that they're like, hey, this deal could support even higher leverage. Right. And so that's another confidence factor, I think, from from my standpoint and for an investor standpoint in a, in a deal. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I would say that it's more like people who are worried about, yeah, am I going to lose all my money? Um I feel like that's more a, because those guys are looking at debt coverage, right? They want to make sure their debt is covered. They don't care how much money we make as, as right. investors and syndicators. So they are more concerned with that. But I, I do think it's a huge peace of mind for investors that, you know, I, I can, as the, as the general partner, I could tweak anything I want in that spreadsheet and make it look like an amazing deal. But you as the investor don't want it to just break even. Um, but, but that's where the safety net kicks in. Yeah. You got to have trust in the syndicator that, that they're, 
you know, being realistic in their, in their projections. Um, but it, it's a huge safety net that, Hey, if this thing goes terribly wrong, the lender feels like it's probably going to cover its itself, you know? Um, and I, the very first passive investment I ever made, it's out of the 22 or 24 I've done, there's only one that hasn't done well. And it was the very first one I, I invested in. And I, I knew it was a high risk, high reward situation. I knew it was a terrible market. Um, but it was showing like a 236% return. And I was like, wow, if, if we miss that by 50%, I'm still doubling my money. And it was a, it got hit directly in the face by Hurricane Harvey. Mm. Um, it had a management company that was falsifying records and stealing. Uh, it had, we had a fatal fire that killed some kids, which was oh, terrible no. with an ensuing lawsuit and a judgment. We had, I mean, it was just everything it could possibly happen, happened on this thing. And, and the hurricane flooded the whole downstairs, the whole first floor. And so we dropped to 50% occupancy. <laughs> and it, I mean, the, the flood insurance was taking forever to kick in. And I mean, just miserable. And it's the sponsor on that deal is now my, one of my partners and friends because of the way he handled that deal. He never came back to us for a cash call. He wow. fronted like a million dollars of his own money to keep it going until everything came around and he got it turned around and it was starting to do really well. And the, it had gone to a special servicer at that point, meaning the lender was like, Hey, you're in trouble. You're in the, the naughty box right now. You know, this guy's <laughs> going to watch over you. And that, that servicer, we think started seeing the opportunity and said, we're going to just take the property from you, oh, um, wow. which they could. And so we said, all right, we'll sell it. And we sold it and everyone got their money back. We didn't lose a penny, but I was like, man, that's a, you know, with all of that going wrong, we didn't lose money. And wow. I just thought that was a huge lesson and also a big lesson in having your, your GPs be financially strong, you know, cause otherwise I've seen a lot of big deals get done where they've put together a bunch of people with like maybe, you know, million dollars net worth each or whatever. And if something goes bad, you know, they're coming straight to the investors. Uh, for, for more cash, which, you know, the, the operating agreements allow you to do. So it was a big learning lesson for me, but um, I, the biggest thing I've learned now is when I look at uh, opportunities as a passive investor, you know, sponsor A might be showing a 236% return and sponsor B is showing an 80% return, but I know sponsor B super well. I've invested with them before. I feel like the first guy has a much bigger chance of missing his numbers you know, drastically versus sure. this guy who might miss it by 10 points or, you know, it's, it's not a science, but I've just really limited the number of people I'll invest with. And it's, it's now almost, I would say 90% or more is the person I'm investing with. I've just kind of learned, you know, it's, I don't, <laughs> I invested in a deal in October in a small town that normally I wouldn't have any interest in. He was getting a 50-50 split. General partner was getting 50% of everything. And I had nothing to review, no numbers. And he said, you know, if you want in, you can. And I did it. Uh, invested in it without seeing anything. But I just know that this guy. You know him. Yeah. And it's, it was last October we bought it. And it's already probably worth twice what we paid. And wow. he, just, he knew there was an opportunity. And so, yeah, it's it's. For me, it is totally now the person. I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but um, yeah, lesson learned. <laughs> I, I think that's important. And, and also, I mean, 
you did 20 some odd deals and, you know, they talk about, you know, with the wealthy, you know, the first thing is preservation of capital. And then secondly is to make an adequate return, mm-hmm. you know, um, and grow it. And so being in 20 some odd deals and not having lost money in any of those deals, one of them came break, break, break even. And the other ones, you know, had substantial returns. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty strong. Yeah. Hey, talk about um, financial freedom and the difference between kind of what your path was before, like, you know, 20 some odd years in, as a firefighter. And with that comes a pension, right? Yep. And then secondarily, as a real estate investor and the growth and wealth doing that. Now, you had two different ways of, of you know, growing wealth and, and income. Um, talk about those two and, you know, which ones had more impact. Oh, well, by far the, the real estate. Um, yeah, I mean, my, the way most pensions work, and for sure mine, is, you know, the return, like you, you can do a, uh, like a sample of what your pension is going to look like given any retirement date. And it kind of goes like this, you know, it gradually increases. And as you get, you know, 25, 30, 35 years, it obviously goes up a lot. But retiring at 22 or 23, whatever it was, it was not much. I mean, it was, you know, maybe a third of my salary. And so it was pretty irrelevant, really. And so that was a, you know, it took me a year to finally pull the trigger on that, even though the real estate had, you know, probably 10x my my salary. And it was, you know, a six-figure salary. Um, but yeah, it, it my fear was, okay, the day I retire, the market's going to fall apart or it's going to crash. You know, everything's going to shut estate, off. The, the real estate market? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I always I always was, you know, because I again, I was listening to some people that were, you know, predicting that. And, and it could, of course, right? We don't know. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. some other virus could come out or nuclear, nuclear attack or whatever. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I mean, we had built up enough and savings and, and a lot of these investments were now creating income. And so we were like, you know what, we, we would be fine for at least a couple of years if, if everything fell apart. So, you know, let's do it. And my wife works and she could work more if she wanted to, she's a self-employed attorney. Um, and so, yeah, we just decided to pull the trigger. And I mean, the, the health insurance was really painful. It's super, super expensive if you're buying your own, um, you know, but it, it's just, yeah, we've, we've just got, complete financial freedom at this point. And I don't, it's funny up until very recently, I had no idea and I still don't have a great idea because I was not tracking distributions from all these investments. And so I went back years and tried to plug in what we've made. I had no idea how much money we were getting from these things. And, you know, we started out putting $50,000 into like uh, two or three deals and then those doubled and we just put it all back into other deals and you know, kept doing it. And, and so now we're putting bigger chunks into fewer deals. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's just been, I mean, gosh, 22 years of, of a full-time job couldn't do for me what, you know, five years of real estate did. That's for sure. So what's the advice to the skeptics out there that, look, I had, I had heard about real estate for years but I didn't get involved until three and a half years ago. I was in my late forties and yeah. you know, it's um, there's people out there that hear about it and they're skeptical. So what, what's the advice to the skeptics? Uh, 
Yeah, I would just say that it's, I mean, if nothing else, I think it's a great um, alternative to other investments. I mean, my wife and I really struggled when we first, you know, like I said, we, we first put money in, I think it was four deals. And we, we were going to financial planners trying to figure out, you know, what do we do with this cash we're getting? And we, we, we stumbled on the idea of we're going to hire a fee-only planner. You know, the guy has no interest in selling us anything. Um, he'll have the, the, you know, the golden answer to us. And the first thing he did is when he looked at all of our stuff, and we only had like, if it was four deals, it was like $200,000 invested in real estate. That's it. And the first thing he said was like, oh, man, you guys are way overweighted in real estate. Way too you heavy. did? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? And, and I don't know what our net worth was at the time. It wasn't huge, but 200000 was not a big piece of it. Right. And, and it dawned on me, you know, these guys have this training and they've got these buckets that they see. And he was treating what I was doing, which was an active business. I'm involved in this every day. You know, I know what deals are good and what aren't. And he was equating it to like sticking money into a, a REIT. You know, right, there's something right. totally no control of it. And so it, I still struggle today. I mean, we are almost completely out of the stock market. We have some, but it's almost all in multifamily real estate, almost everything. And, you know, that was really scary for the longest time. And I just, I ran into so many people that are, you know, ultra high net worth people that they do the same thing. And, you know, I, I did some reading on family offices and a lot of those guys invest almost everything in what made them wealthy. You know, that's not diversification. It's, you know, so, but anyway, for people that are, that don't know anything about it, I, I just, I can't imagine not having something, you know, it's right. a physical asset. It, it's likely not going to go to zero, you know, which a stock can, you know, probably not a blue chip stock, but um, I have just completely, it's been a slow process, but I've completely changed my mind on, how I feel about, you know, yeah, my, it, it, my it takes time it. and everybody oh, goes yeah. through their own process with yeah. that. Um, but what I would say to people is, look, we, we were all kind of trained, um, get good grades, get good job, climb the corporate ladder, yep. put money away in 401k. your 401k and it's just going to grow. Right. But what, what we lost is accountability. Like, and so what I would tell people is, look, you make good money, you put money aside, you are responsible for that. You know, you as the listener are responsible for the money that you put aside and where you put it. So if you just put it in a 401k and just hope that it, hope that it's going to grow into this huge nest egg, then shame on you. And I say that to myself, shame on me that I did mm -hmm. that for so many years Yep. So, you know, you need to actually learn about the investments that you're investing in. And, you know, real estate is one of the alternatives that you can look at. Um, but no matter what you invest in, it's your responsibility to, to learn and, and yeah. get comfortable with that investment. Well, and, and it was funny. One thing that kind of flipped a switch for me, I was on an accident scene at work, just kind of sitting there after everything was over and we're waiting you know, for stuff to get cleaned up. And I was talking to one of the police officers and he was, uh, he was a lot younger than me, like maybe mid thirties or something like that. And somehow real estate came up. Oh, I think he just said like, Hey, I heard you're, you know, you're doing this apartment thing. And um, he's like, yeah, I've got some single family homes and uh, they've done really well for me. Well, come to find out he's got like 60, he had like Holy 60, 60? 60, home, 60 homes. 
And I was like, what? And he said, well, my dad always did it. And so I started doing it in like in high school, he, you know, and he would, he would do all the work himself. And I started asking him, I was like, that's gotta be paying you a lot more than your, your police salary. And he's like, oh yeah, I could retire right now if I wanted. And I was like, why, why aren't people taught this? And you know, yeah, all your money in your 401k, maybe it's growing, let's say, and it's doing all these things. You can't touch it. Right. Yet he had all this money in these houses was just literally filling his bank account every month and not going down in value. So I was just like, oh my gosh, that is, and I've, I've run into a lot of people like that, that, you know, they're in, and if, if anyone's read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, it's the investor versus the employee. And I just was like, man, and these, these 401ks, and you start taking money out, um, you know, does anyone really think tax rates are going down? You know, right. probably not. Um, and yeah, it just sounds so dismal now. Well, when you retire, your income is going to be a lot lower. And so your taxes are going to be lower. I don't want my retirement to be like that. Right. right. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, that was a big light bulb for me in, on the investment side. And it's, it's just so different than stocks and bonds and all that stuff. And not that those are bad. And I know people make a ton of money at it, but man, for me, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much done with all that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I hear you. So what do you like to do outside of work for fun? Oh gosh. I was a big tennis player. Um, I hurt my stupid arm a couple of years ago and haven't been able to play since. And then, uh, golf, I, I again, haven't done that. Just kind of briefly got back into it, which is why I look sunburned. I just got back from uh, a, a trip. I didn't, a I didn't realize you played golf. We should get out there and play sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you and I were going to play with uh, Nick that one day. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, I have a torn rotator cuff that I, I went and it was doing really well. And I went on this trip. Uh, it was a bunch of real multifamily owners and I was like, man, I can't pass this up and played twice. And it, it's just way back to being a problem. But um, yeah, so golf, tennis, I love to snow ski. Um, a lot of that stuff has really, like, I like playing guitar, but that's all been. I see the three guitars in the background there. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, but that, man, the real estate, I swear, especially when you're actively doing deals, it's just not a lot of that going on. <laughs> it but, can consume your, your yeah, for sure. Yeah, for, yeah for sure. That's, that's kind of the main ones, I guess. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, um, hey, if somebody wants to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? You know, I wish I had a great answer to that. Probably just my email at this point, which is tdmultifamily at gmail.com. Like TD as in Tango Delta. Um, a really smart guy told me several months ago that I should have a domain and start building a social media presence, which was you. Uh, <laughs> and I actually did buy tomblafferty.net, but I've done oh, good. absolutely nothing with it. So um, I know I need to do that. I just... You know, it's, it's, I was listening to Charlie Young talking, if, if anybody saw him at Brad's name, NatCon this time. And, you know, he was talking about how it's taken decades to build their investor list. And they've got people that used to put a hundred thousand dollars in their deal. Now they're putting a million. And I'm just, that's so much more my personality is to build long-term things with loyal investors. But I, yeah, it is dumb that I'm not at least doing something you know i don't even put a post when we close a deal like everyone else does and right i should i know that and um well i mean look part of it is your personality is is you know you're you're very humble and and you're relationship driven 
Um, and look, social media can be uncomfortable, you know, just like doing your first deal is uncomfortable. Like yeah. a lot of the steps, you know, but once you do it, you get comfortable with it. But, you know, here's the thing is that when, when all of a sudden somebody that you didn't know, you know, reaches out and you help that person because. Because that's you, how we got be, connected. Yeah. Because that's how you got connected. Then, you know, not the, not the guy that's, you know, has all these questions and skeptical and all that, but the guy that's like, Hey, look, I really need some help. And, and you genuinely yeah. like, you like to teach. I mean, you like to, you know, you like to help people. And so if that person seeks your guidance and you help them, that's when all of a sudden you see the value in it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and I have this, this notion that if I, you know, I, I don't want to be the guy that's like, Hey, look what I had for lunch, you know, or <laughs> right, right. whatever. And there's a lot of that out there. It, um, it's, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's a little, <laughs> you know, it, it's uncomfortable at first. I mean, I, I hired a guy to help me with Instagram when I first started because I didn't have an Instagram account. Yeah. And my, my kids had one and they, they were laughing at me that I was going to be on Instagram. And I'm like, what do I got to do? And he's like, you got to post every day. I'm like, what the heck am I going to post? That's, that's the you other know? thing. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. like I'm like, I'm, and I was like nervous to hit send, you know, <laughs> like, you know, but yeah, you, you kind of get like everything in life, you know, if you do it enough, you kind of get, get over it. But um, yeah. Well, yeah, and that's the other thing. I feel like it's going to be so much work because it's, I've heard the same thing is that you don't want to just, you know, hey, put something and then don't do it again for six yeah. months, you know, but right. I should at least have a a website. People could see, you know, what we do <laughs> or what I do. And yeah, so I need, I need to, I need to get on that. All right. Fantastic. Well, um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, I'm very thankful to you um, and coaching me and helping me get my first deal and, uh, letting me be a KP on, on your yeah, Oasis yeah. deal and doubled, you know, more than doubled our money on that deal. Um, and I wish you and, and uh, your partners much success. And I look Thank forward you. to uh, investing with you again. Yeah. And, um, you know, listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Until next week. When, when, quick, quick question. When's your yeah. next one? When's your next one coming? We need to do it. Um, <laughs> you know, I partnered with a couple, um, a couple guys this year where I would, it was outside of the Sumrock group though, because okay. uh, Dustin Miles, who used to yeah. be in the group, yeah, yeah. Um, I partnered with him and, and uh, Hayden Harrington on a A-class deal in Houston. And um, cool. right now I'm, I'm in um, a deal with David Legat and uh, okay. Chihiro. Um, that one's a big fixer upper, man. It's like, 40% occupied. So it's going to be, opportunity. It, it's, it, it's got a lot of opportunity for sure, but it's going to, it's, it's a mess, man. It's wow. going to, it's going to take some real work, but I, I'm looking forward to seeing that because so many of the other deals are kind of like, um, you know, easier value add 90% sure, yeah. plus, you know, so. Um, All right. Well, very cool. Absolutely. Hope, hope to work with you again soon. Yep. Uh, listeners again, I hope you enjoyed that one until next week. Signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.